was like me, breasts, baby, laptop. Your breasts are separate from you at this point. Pretty much the whole <laughs> other entity, two of them, they're known as Everest and K2. <laughs> Many people have died on the descent. <laughs> Pretty much. Right. One is the biggest and the other one's the second biggest. Hello and welcome to Ears Wide Open, a podcast that is a project of the open book and increasingly beautiful secondhand bookstore at 201 Ponsonby Road in Auckland. You're hearing the voice of the co-proprietor, Hayden Glass, and in a stunning turn of events, uh, today's interviewee is none other than the curator of events at the open book and poet, as well as other things, Anna Livesey. Welcome. Hi. It's great to have you here. It's nice to be here. And look at you on the other side of the microphone. Yes, yes. I'll make sure I always sit on this side of the microphone. Oh, I see. <laughs> oh, it's difficult to tell from the, but acute listeners might pick it up. Yes, I'm always on the right side of the microphone. Did you want to read us a poem, Anna? I'd love to read you a poem. Great news. I'm working on some new work. I'm always working on some new work, but it's been a relatively productive six months, I guess, by which I mean I've written a poem a month. <laughs> we don't want to rush things. No. This is called These Last Few Days As Winter Turns to Spring. A female blackbird has come, hopping on thin legs through the open porch door into the back alcove, stealing with quick pecks the little dry biscuits from the cat's dish. Bird like a brave thing. In her story she has found a rich vein, her claws light clacking on the lino, the sound of plenty. She doesn't know she's venturing into the role of prey. It's time you were coming home, brave like a brave thing. In your story an open door is a sign to look through, springtime the season to resettle and restart. On my walk home from the station, red bud trees their namesake flowers and wine-red heart-shaped leaves. In my story, these leaves are a motif repeating along the branches. What does it mean to view two stories and notice how they exist alongside each other? To say, here is an intersection of narratives or a node, here a slight proudness where the stem leaves, where the stem joins the branch, where the open door leads into where the open door leads out of the room. And you said you're working on a new... You're a, you're a seven-year poetry cycle, I understand. Correct. And how far through are we? Gosh, well, I guess um, we're one and a half years into the new cycle. And are we on track then, or are we... We're well ahead of schedule. Oh, are we becoming more productive? It's possible. Oh. Perhaps we've found some efficiencies in our method of production. <laughs> Possibly so. <laughs> Well, at least to the question of why, amongst all the other things, of course, you've got other things in your life you might want to talk about, but why are you a poet? What's the relationship with the other things going on in your life? Well, I think, I think I've said this to you before, that if I think of myself as anything, then foremost, first and foremost, I think of myself as a poet. And that feels like an identity that I've inhabited the most continuously, or, or a stream that's always existed, even if it's sometimes gone underground, perhaps. So this is a good question, and it's a question I ask other people, and you ask me, and I've been thinking about it. And I think for me, the thing about poetry is that it goes straight to the point, but is also elusive and 
elusive and it gives play to intellect, to emotion, to craft and it's a very private activity that then becomes a very public activity. Very public, mildly public. (laughs) (laughs) Depending on sales, listeners. We have the book in the store. As public as you can attempt to make it. And so when I first started writing poetry, so I wrote my first poem that I recall about the Hillsborough Stadium disaster. Mm. I'm sure it was Grist for many a mill. That's right, 1980-something. And I have notebooks going back to about age 11 full of writing that I used to do, you know, most nights in my bed with my little bedside lamp on. So it's uh, somewhere that I've always found to put my experience of life that I maybe haven't had other good places to put or haven't had receptive places to put. And over time, my appreciation of the craft and of the ability to transmit effectively as well as just to emote has grown, I hope. So we'll come back to that in a sec, but so when are you doing more poetry in your life and when are you doing less, like over time? What's, how does it, what causes it to come and go? You've got more to say or you've got more space or, or what's going on? So, you know, Wordsworth says something along the lines of poetry is intense emotion recalled in a state of tranquility. <laughs> and Wendy Cope says poetry is intense emotion recalled in a state of intense emotion. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess there's two, I mean, I wrote a lot when I was a teenager continuously. And then when I was 21, I, 21? Yeah. When I was 21, 22, when I was 22, I did a master's in poetry and spent a year trying to write poetry. Full-time poetry. Full-time poetry. Boom. And also wrote two drafts of two novels. Oh, (laughs) so so 70% poetry. (laughs) If I recall correctly, I used the months of September and October to write the novels. (laughs) And then then I had another year in Iowa writing poetry. And that kind of drained me completely. So Ah. the first year of Masters, I wrote a book and I'd been writing and I'd been actually working on a whole lot of stuff in that book over the last couple of years. So I had some big, long poems in there that were found poems and Hmm. sort of non-fiction poems and non-personal poems. And then Iowa was a pretty rough experience and I found there wasn't enough input outside of poetry into life and this just, you know, and I thought, I'm never going to do this again. (laughs) And so I came back. I'm never going to write poetry again. I'm never going to write poetry again. I'm never going to write poetry again. And people said, people, my publisher, Fergus, and a couple of other people said, well, where's that second book? And I was like, meh never coming but then I wrote a whole lot of work one Easter at my aunt and uncle's house at a time when my mother who'd been sick for a long time had just gone into care and so I feel like there was some space to do some writing that it was some access to emotion that hadn't been there for a while and so that's when I wrote most of my second book and then most of my third book little pieces were written by commission or sort of Uh, along the way but most of my third book was written in the three months after my daughter was born between the hours of because you had lots of spare time then right (laughs) well between between the hours of 6 p.m and 12 a.m or 1 a.m when she just wanted to feed continuously Mm. so I just got into bed and left our other child and the household chores to my husband and I just put my laptop on my knee beyond the baby and she was like me 
breasts baby laptop. Your breasts are separate from you at this point. Pretty much the whole <laughs> other entity, two of them, they're known as Everest and K2. <laughs> Many people have died on the descent. <laughs> Pretty much. Right. One is the biggest and the other one's the second biggest. And, uh, you know, that's a pretty intense time. So I had some things to say at that time. And now I just, you know, it's a lot of stuff going on in life that feels like it needs a place to go. How does it compare, for example, with corporate strategy, which is another one of your... Well, it's basically the same thing. (laughs) So the things that I do, uh, so I love spreadsheets, I love strategy, I love drawing things on whiteboards, I love debating, I love comedy, I love poetry, and I love cooking. And they're all essentially the ability to draw a cohesive thought out of disparate pieces mm-hmm. so it's exactly the same thing right and so are there other things that are like that, that you have not yet embarked upon that you think in future life you know, oh my god now i know all these other things it's an easy step from here to i don't oh, know neither. have you got any ideas no, but i'm thinking you know rocketry or something very no, out there. no 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 nothing that requires so none of these things require any tools other than my brain mm. and a pen i see and oh well cooking obviously some uh, requires some ingredients and they're all pretty quick return right so you're not doing <laughs> you're not spending months on detail in order to get to a final result you spend some time learning and thinking and then you go oh here's the core of it mm-hmm. so that's the thing so i can just write this down and leave the rest that's right so mm. what i'll do is write 12 lines mm. and then i'll say well that whole experience and set of sensations and thoughts there it is and then you'll say actually that's too long i'm going to make it nine lines correct or i'll say (laughs) oh so i've drawn a diagram and this diagram shows every part of the business and it's got 12 segments and now i understand you should also a conceptual model that's right so yeah when do you write a poem what's the difference when do you write an email what's the difference between these two things well, a poem is a communication with myself, and an email is a communication with somebody else. So why publish them then? Because they're great. <laughs> <laughs> the emails as well. Oh, I'm, I'm working on a collection of emails. <laughs> right. You oh, laugh, but... Uh... <laughs> Perhaps you could attach at the bottom of your poems, you could attach a small disclaimer. <laughs> yes. This is not a communication for the purposes of the... Electronic, Yeah. Or... Mm. Well, an email has an intent. I mean, a poem, a poem, the intent of a poem is to capture as perfectly as I can a sensation and a thought that I have. Whereas the intent of an email, let us say, often, is to attempt to communicate something to somebody else in a specific... And to not be in trouble. Largely, it's to not be in trouble, is my experience of emails. Of emails. <laughs> it's interesting, though, isn't it? Because we often the reality of poetry is that it's something that is... There's no full-time poetry. There's no... Well, there's David Merritt. There's David Merritt, admittedly. Okay, when I say no, I mean there's a very small subset. It's got very low barriers to entry. There's lots of poets. Yes, Um, it's incredible how many poets you find. And I'm I'm very frightened every time someone says, Oh, (laughs) oh, you're a poet. And I go, oh, God, here we go. Because they're going to tell you that they're a poet. Correct. And in memorable times this has happened to me include when I was doing some consulting work at a district health board. I said, 
well, I didn't say, I would never say this, but the person I was with, my workmate, who'd recently, well, on the long drive that we'd had from Wellington, had found out that I was a poet and was very excited about this, cried out to our client, oh, oh, she's a poet. And our client said, oh, oh, well, as it happens, so am I. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God. I said... Are you a corporate strategist? I said, <laughs> what do you write poetry ah. about? Do you write it about district health boards? Mm, and she said, yes, I do. She said... Um, I'll just use a rhythmic name. She said, one day the minister sent a letter, XYZ District Health Board must do better. I said, oh, that's pretty good. She said, it goes on a lot longer. I said, I bet it does. <laughs> and someone asked me the other day at uh, Mangafai Market, who was selling something and clearly looked like a poet. He said, oh, you're a poet. What sort of poet are you? I said, published. Wow. <laughs> We're going a long way back to something you said earlier on. What changed between poetry as... There's obviously a lot of craft in your poetry. There's obviously a lot of work made to, to make the words meaningful and not have too many of them and say the thing you want to say in the most efficient way or most elegant way, perhaps. But somewhere along the way, you've also changed subject matter because you've gone from poetry with lots of different voices to really poetry, your confessional poetry, something where you are saying something along the way and you can see traces of it in your second book and your third book is essentially just like, an enormous blurt <laughs> just, I mean, a, series of, a series of small blurts yes um, uh, so what happened or did anything happen, is this just I went from realized, went from it being an intellectual exercise to it being an emotional one or did I grow up or what happened well, when I was a very young, when I was a very young poet. When I was a gal. When I was a gal. When I was mm. a very young poet, like younger than 16, say. Younger than 15, probably. I had a very, I had no view on what poetry should be about, really. And I just wrote, God knows what I wrote. I have the archive, I could find it. Mm. And then I had a couple of teachers who were very important to me. Um, in particular, Elaine Linsky, who is Kate Camp's mum and it was an English teacher at Wellington High School. And she sort of took me under her wing poetry-wise, a few of us under her wing poetry-wise, and she sort of had some things to say about the craft of poetry and the and what's kind of interesting in poetry. And I think it was partly her influence. Um, and Kate, her daughter, came in, and Kate was writing quite kind of thinky poetry. And I became very much, did not wish to have the gaucherie of teenage emotion in my poetry and so I was very conscious of that and I did a lot of found poetry and other things that were about the words and about finding a way to display my facility with words that didn't require me to display much of myself probably and then as I and then you know and that was basically my first year and then at my master's, my first book. And then um, I had a pretty tough time at Iowa. A lot of people had a tough time at Iowa then for all sorts of reasons, partly because the teachers were pretty tough and the environment was pretty tough and the weather was pretty bad. And I think it's a lot better now and a lot more supportive, but it was kind of like a bit of a dog-eat-dog -dog sort of situation. And I was quite young, 23, I guess, there with my husband and got really actually very depressed and then didn't really want to write and then never wanted to write again. 
as I say, and then I think it struck me or the sensation of being able to have some feelings probably about what I'd been through with my mother who'd gone into care. Poetry seemed an okay place to put that. And then I think it was the process of growing up and a process of being less worried about perfect containment and more interested in better description of shared experiences, individual, you know, one's personal experiences that can possibly resonate with others or not even really being that bothered by, I mean, realising, I mean, when I published my first book, I was like, oh, I see this changes nothing. Like, no, (laughs) there's a book in the world Mm. and a few people have bought it, but like my life is completely exactly the same. Mm. So I guess realising that the whole thing was a lot less like many fewer people were paying attention or you right. know it didn't really sort of matter and then the poems that I've been reading when before I wrote well as, as I was writing my third book and um, there's an amazing book called Roadside Dog which I think you have a copy of around here somewhere I do but it's not near at hand I've currently yeah. lent my copy to um, Sophie Van Wonderburger uh, which is a late work of Chesla Milosh and is so blunt about his worldly experience or his experience of the world and is so kind of like a like a it's like a Hessian blanket or something. You know, it's kind of Uncomfortable. Uh, uncomfortable. <laughs> uncomfortable. It looks like it contains no craft, but actually so a Hessian blanket's probably not a very good metaphor. There's a better metaphor. You know, it's like a shake a shake a chair. Or I don't know what the right metaphor is, but it looks completely naive, but is actually extremely sophisticated, and it looks, um, and it's just very kind of honest. And so I was thinking about that as I was working on my third book. And so, what's the is the fourth one a progression again? Do you think from the so far? I don't know. I. I one doesn't I don't really write a book. I just mm. write some poems and then mm-hmm. eventually there's enough of them. Yeah. <laughs> like that's kind of the process. Yes. We shall see. We shall see. Yeah, I don't know if progression is the right word. Mm, well no. In possibly as many as five and a half years, but perhaps fewer. Correct. If anyone's paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think at this point we should take a pause and pour some more tea. Okay. And we're back with tea. So let's talk about quality, because uh, you mentioned your district health board poet and other poets with, into, whom, into whom you have run, and also David Merritt, who poets. we had the joy to have at the bookstore this weekend, who is amazing. What do you think makes a good poem? Like, is there anything, what is the, what is the essence of it? Is there an essence? I think that there are an overlapping but not completely the same two sets of poems I would say are good poems and poems that I like or that speak to me. So good poems, which would include some poems that I think, eh, can't be bothered or, you know, what a load of wank, but it's good, do at least one of pay intense attention to language and use it in a way that is startling 
provide imagery that is resonant. Say something that would not be able to be said in any other format or any other set of words. Those are probably the three things. If a poem's not doing any of those things... Yeah, it's not going to grab your attention. And then it's not a good poem. Mm. What else could it be doing that would be good? Poems I like tend to have some human touch to them, some emotional content, some almost... It's not quite narrative, but some narrative resonance to them. So I'm not a huge fan of really languagey poetry I I mean I can listen to it but I wouldn't I don't I don't choose to engage with it really and I'm not a big fan of thing poetry that is too narrative uh, and that is long (laughs) really (laughs) be brief poets well if you want to tell a long story just write a blooming story you know and uh, there's a lot of stuff here that's sort of I don't know Shelley and you know those things that are when poetry was read in as a narrative form, and I, I struggled to get through that. But it's not that it's not good of mm. its kind, but it's not really for me. What do you think it is that makes pop music, you know, like hugely popular and able to fill a stadium, and poetry not as popular by the, by that definition? Like, was there ever a time? Is there ever a place or a country or somewhere where? Poets were like, oh my god, the poets are in town. Well, Homeric Greece, you know, wandering troubadours. I think that the separation of music and poetry is a very recent thing, and the separation of performance. I mean, obviously, in pre-literate societies, performance and poetry cannot be separated, right? The, The role of the lightning rod or the translator of communal emotion or the capture of the zeitgeist is a role that's needed in societies and poetry uh, pop music is the combination of word performance and music and fulfills that role so much more powerfully and with so many more vectors for so many more people than poetry does and so the fact that music can exist I mean the fact that we think that pop music is not poetry is kind of weird it's they're called lyrics which is a type lyric poetry. Like, music gives you the chance to be a much less good poet and still connect with people. Not that all lyrics are bad poetry, some are amazing poetry, but the music does so much work. So I think that for most people, poetry on the page is just a poor comparison and Mm. doesn't serve that communal release and communication and capturing function. But once did, I mean, if you look at Northanger Abbey, the heroine of Northanger Abbey, which, um, dear listeners, Hayden Glass has read no Jane Austen, so (laughs) write in to complain, burn down the bookshop. Come in and buy a copy and try and convince me. Come in and buy a copy and sit on the sofa and read it out loud to him (laughs) when he can't escape. Catherine, Catherine Morley, the heroine, you know, is sort of, a wash in emotions and most of them are brought about by gothic novels it's a novel about the perils of gothic novels but I'm pretty sure she gets immersed in some kind of heady poetry as well 
I just think music's very powerful and poetry's not as powerful for most people. That's it's changed over time. They used to be as you say, we can now write down our lyrics and people can read them on the internet. Well, I think that probably you wouldn't have heard came. poetry without music in mm. the past, I suspect, or certainly without performance. But often I mean troubadours and mm. I don't know whether there was music with Homeric poetry, but there was certainly you know, a group situation in a fire in starlight and some compelling version of the world being told to you, which is essentially what you get at a concert. And there's some sort of there's some sort of stepping out of the day-to-day experience because you can just tell a story. Oh, I, I remember when. Oh, that reminds me of when blah, blah, blah. I knew a guy who... But there's something more that happens when you start trying to describe social events or trying to explain what's going on in society in a public way. Somehow, you, you, you put yourself forward as a chronicler of the time or something. Yes. In some way. Yes, and, and you know, if you sing, there's an amazing Buffy episode where they just change breaks into song, you know. I mean, musicals, What what is that about, right? Mm. It's like, oh, my God. Our normal spoken reality can no longer contain the emotions that are happening on stage or mm. on the television, and we must now sing, <laughs> and or you know, music must now happen. And I think that yeah, the divorce of the lyric from its musical setting has marginalised it, which I think is completely fine. I don't think there's any problem with that. I mean, no, God. it's just a thing. As yes, I was recently in a position to attend various operas. And they're quite interesting because they're mostly in languages that I do not understand. But in practice, that does not matter at all because the music... Boy meets well, I, girl. I, I, the Boy plot. loses girl. Boy gets girl. Girl dies of galloping consumption. Or, yes, or usually something even much more ludicrous than that. But um, girl, dies of, girl dies of swallowing hat pin. No, well, boy and girl turn out to be brother and sister switched at birth. Oh, my God, and, Star Wars. Right. I mean, it's... So, thank you, yes. We're drinking um, very cheap wine out of a <laughs> 1.5 litre bottle, listeners. I mean, not, we're not drinking it out of the bottle, but it's in a 1.5 litre bottle. It is being poured into very small glasses, do not worry. Tradition is being kept with. No, my point being that you know, music can carry even when the language does not translate. It's not difficult to understand what's going on in an opera. It's nothing, well, a, nothing much happens, and B... The action is so usually so crazily stereotypical that you can you can just see it with the emotion. I'm sad. I'm angry. I'm disappointed. It's, these are not difficult things to convey with music. And so the space that's left for poetry then, mm. when music is something more takes it over, is something more sophisticated. Exactly. And people who use poetry merely to convey naive and they might as well pick up a guitar. And well, it would sound better <laughs> if they did. Like, let's be real, right? You know. Let's skip on. So this is an episode of Ears Wide Open, which is, of course, a uh, literary... It might even be episode 30. Episode 30, a literary podcast. Let's, go talk, let's talk about that. Let's stop talking about you as a poet, and let's talk about that. Well, how, is, how is that going? What is that, what is that for? Is it working? Well, I haven't looked at the subscription figures for some <laughs> Oh, weeks. you're saying that the number of listeners matters. Okay, that's well, an I was, interesting uh, Well, no, I was wondering what the definition of working is. So, yes. well, you know the origin story of this. 
but I don't know if you remember it, I'll tell you my version. So we had started doing these events, which were all about me, because we started doing them because I wanted to launch my book. Ah, right. And I said, oh, we could do more of these. <laughs> a good place to start. Yeah, we could make this a regular thing. And you said, okay, or yes. And I said, great, can you just buy us a microphone and make sure there's wine? And you said, yes. And then after we'd done a few, you said it would be great if there was some kind of record or something we could put on the website of these events. So, oh, so this was me. More content, yes. Oh, okay. And I stared at you with a wild surmise uh, from the peak of Darien and said, oh my God, we could do a podcast. Mm. And I was already making a podcast. I don't really make any more with my uh, husband where we describe New Yorker cartoons. But you can find the back catalogue. It's called Nobody Knows You're a Dog. And it's pretty funny, in my humble opinion. We had quite a fan base for that. But mm. um, that, that was before I'd taken up comedy and had his, yeah, various other things got in the way. Anyway, so I was very excited about the thought of doing a podcast. Um, partly because a very long time ago, when we both existed in previous lives, much more connected with telecommunications mm. than our current lives, I helped write a digital strategy that talked a lot about content creation and, and people creating <laughs> content and just like putting it on the internet and I was like that's never going to be a thing like I don't even know what that is it's craziness and I was quite excited to realize that 10 years later I was about to enter the world in which I was actually making content and putting it on the internet and the cost was the hundred dollar microphone that I'd bought and whatever small hosting fee uh, you're paying on the website so I was really excited about that, and you said, oh, well, they'll be about two minutes long, right? And I was like, mm. <laughs> That's the throat clearing at the beginning. <laughs> That's right. Clearing. We started out doing a few of them, and I realized that it's amazing to me. So if we go back to things that I like, I like things that are able to be got at quite quickly. I hated academic English essays despised them by the time I'd finished my English degree. But I love to read some work and read a little bit about someone and think about some questions and then have a conversation with them. Mm -hmm. And so I started out with poets and then we got some novelists and I was like, oh, shit, there's a lot Quite more wrong. reading. <laughs> there's a lot more reading for novelists. And the questions are a bit different because I don't understand the craft of novel making I don't understand the craft of prose. I don't understand how people can write prose in the same way that I do not understand how people can create music uh, or, I don't know, other things, do brain surgery. You know, I think I probably have a better grasp of brain surgery painting, than writing novels. Oil painting. No, no, I'm okay with that. Right. I don't understand how you can hold all the bits in your mind to write a decent novel. Mm. I just don't get it. How that's possible. Anyway, so the joy of these podcasts for me is to read around someone's work and condense it down to a few questions and there's patterns to the questions and then to hear their amazing answers. And people love it as well. They're, it's interesting to me that people take it very seriously and feel that there must be rules and that there's some kind of, this is some kind of thing that's happening and can we do this or can we do that? And I say, well, we can do whatever we want. Like, it doesn't matter. There's no, no one's in charge except for you and I, by which I mean them and me. And uh, people sometimes are quite nervous. And I've had people write 
out all the answers to the questions that I provided ahead of time and then I ask them some other question and they go oh my god so that's fascinating to me and the joy of actually having a serious conversation about things that I think are really interesting and hearing what people have to say and the other piece that is interesting to me is that as you know but our listeners probably do not for my in my corporate life I've been doing some training on coaching people which is all about asking the most useful open question that you can And so that in some ways has linked into the interviewing of people for the podcast and some places that we end up are really fascinating. I mean, the conversation I had with David Merritt at 8.30 in the morning on Saturday last week ended up in some quite deep places and it was really great. It felt like we were connecting his work and what it is to be a creator of things And I also think it's recording just a moment in our cultural history in the milieu around the bookshop. So I think it's working. Mm. Sounds like it's working. That feels like two thumbs up. Yeah. Takes Mm. a long time to edit. Right. So sometimes I get behind when various other portions of life get in the way. Mm. It can be (laughs) difficult to do all the things. All of the things. Speaking of all of the things, do do you have something else you want to read? I feel like we need to bring this conversation to a sure an elegant conclusion listeners anna is scrolling up and down anna is not list, going to read any of those new list poems. Of poems she does not think she's not going to read any of those no she's going We're to read a very long the canon. poem a long poem she's going to read a very long poem called because i'm a human and this is a long one two three four Five paragraph uh, prose poem. In no way could it be called flash fiction. It would be very upsetting. It's not fiction. It's called Because I'm a Human and it's from Ordinary Time. Listening to the radio on a Saturday morning, I'm waiting to get my blood tested to calibrate the damage done by genetics, environment, two old lady pregnancies, my greed. There's an art history professor on. At any given time, he says, up to 50% of the art on the world market is fake. It's a flabbergasting statement, even when I realise he means vases and statues and such like, not just hundreds of mocked-up canvases, rip-off Picassos and Titians, Boshes and Rothkos. Did Matisse ever work in felt? Perhaps in his late, carefree, dying, cutting days. Add it in. Confirmation bias comes up and the planting of false clues for the dealer and authentication expert to find. And I think, how much more fun it is to say, yes, a lost work, a previously unknown Vermeer, a new treasure. Even if Vermeer never painted religious scenes and the brushwork is suspiciously clumsy, probably an off day, he had a bad flu and was shaky, felt a sudden mortal urge to make nice with God. Because I'm a human and my mind deals in symbols and allegories, jumps and illusions, I think of other things I've been thinking of lately, like what's knowable of the child in the womb? When the technician passed over the print, we saw a grainy assemblage, black and white data. Not until later, when he'd breathed, grown into himself, could we look back and see the image, the broad sweet face his own, the first true pick. And it goes on, doesn't it, this search. 
There's a poem by Raymond Carver in which Tess Gallagher cuts his hair. The house is quiet, there's snow outside. Her scissors remove and reveal, but it's not the revelation he is memorialising, rather the recognition of need, the privilege of a beautiful woman who looks at him. All this puts me in mind of the hobgoblin's hat, a hat that shifts shapes so that an eggshell carelessly tossed in floats out a cloud. Discarded pink perennials ramble and bear unknown fruit, and a compact nubby-eared moomin troll playing hide and seek emerges stalk-limbed and grotesque, a boss-eyed wobble monster wavering through moomin house. His friends, good, loving, obtuse, fear and despise him, but his mother, though he is changed, knows. Thank you very much. Is there anything else you wanted to say at this moment? Anything else we could have asked you? I realise there's a few other questions that could possibly come up, but perhaps we can leave them for... Episode 16? Episode 16, exactly. No, just thank you for interviewing me. What a pleasure to be allowed to ramble on myself. (laughs) Well, it's my good fortune to be able to give you this permission. So thank you very much. That's been Ears Wide Open for another arbitrary time period. If you are in Auckland, pop in to the bookstore at 201 Ponsonby Road. We're open every single day except for Christmas Day and Boxing Day. And wander around the undemanding shelves and see if you can find yourself a book or two. Admire our brand new, much improved kitchen and our wander through our French doors to the garden. And the onsen. Uh, no onsen yet, I um, note, but obviously the future onsen. Pick yourself some sorrel. Uh, if you are not in Auckland, of course, uh, you can avail yourself of our website where we uh, send you books on subscription, a service called My Book Bag. We put them in a beautiful parcel, seal them with wax and post them to you on a timetable that suits. Thanks very much. <laughs>